Well, hello everyone. This is Steve Raveling. I want to welcome you to an episode of uh, my eHealth Visual Pulse uh, podcast. And today I am really excited. We are launching our our new format for 2024, where I'll be introducing uh, colleagues and friends of mine in the health IT space and talking about various uh, subjects that might be of interest to you. I hope they are. Today, we're joined by Jay Nakashima. Jay is the Executive Director of the eHealth Exchange. And uh, we're going to talk about the eHealth Exchange, about Jay, about Tefka, and whatever else comes to mind. So with that, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start by asking Jay to uh, introduce himself and tell our listeners a little bit about himself and about the eHealth Exchange. Jay? Yeah, well, thank you, Steve, for having me. So first, I'll tell you a little about me. It's all about me today. So my name is Jay Nakashima. I'm the Executive Director of eHealth Exchange, and I've been working in um, health IT now for about 30 years. And I've always, you know, I've worked for providers, I've worked for payers, I've worked for EHR vendors, now six years with the um, eHealth Exchange nonprofit network. But, you know, it, it strikes me that when I look back and I realize that no matter which job or which company I was with or company type, I always worked on um, or gravitated towards interoperability. So with the payers, you know, I was um, always focused on EDI exchange, trying to get rid of the paper. With um, EHR vendors, I was always working on um, trying to get data to move from one EHR to another, always with a heavy focus on lab results, which was the first kind of uh, HIE exchange. Then with uh, providers, you know, trying to exchange full medical records, um, typically to try to help with uh, transitions of care and make sure that there were that patients were, you know, gracefully moving from one care setting to another. I think Steve will have some some great characterizations of eHealth Exchange that I won't have because he's actually been with eHealth Exchange or servicing it for much longer than I have, Steve was involved in eHealth Exchange way back in the beginning when it was called the National Health Information Network, NHIN or NWHIN, when it started out as an HHS ONC project. And I've only, and that was, I think that started way back around 2006 or so. And I joined around 2018. So at one point, eHealth Exchange, as I understand it, moved from being an ONC project to a permanent, nonprofit, public-private collaborative. But at any rate, it's a network. So it's um, a group of healthcare organizations that, um, that have all agreed to exchange data using the same trust principles, the same rules of the road. And we currently have about 330 signatories, some of and that might be a large health system. It might be one of five federal agencies. It might be one of 60 state or regional HIEs. And we currently facilitate the exchange of about 20 billion transactions annually. And unlike the 
you know, the, the EDI clearing houses, you know, we facilitate the exchange of rich clinical information that is typically patient specific to help uh, providers um, who are making treatment decisions at the bedside, chair side, table side. And we're quickly moving into expanding how we help public health agencies in all 50 states. And then we're uh, working on some exciting things to um, expand payer and provider connectivity uh, in more standardized, reliable ways. That's fantastic, Jack. It's, yeah. yeah, but Steve, you go way back with the health exchange. What did I? What did I miss? Oh yeah, way back. No, it's a great summary. I mean, you're right. We what is today the e-health exchange did begin very modestly back in 2006, 2007, as a a contract activity within the office of the national coordinator, and it was an effort to demonstrate whether what we now call the e-health exchange was even feasible. At that point, we didn't know if it was even feasible. And so ONC awarded awarded nine grants to nine different organizations and then very rapidly turned around and awarded six additional grants. So we had a, an initial group of 15. And one of those was a company called Med Virginia, it doesn't even exist anymore. And it was a it was an early stage health information network in uh, Virginia, where, where I live. And the CEO of Med Virginia, Volan, told me to lead up this uh, <laughs> DERSA workshop. And I said, what is a DERSA? <laughs> so that's how it all got started. Everything starts somewhere, right? Wow, that's fascinating. Yeah, and I don't know how you guys did it back in 2006. You know, the men and women who tried to get X number of federal agencies and big health systems and state and regional HIEs to agree on one contract. They were all going to sign without markup or red lines. That's a lot of trust. It it was. Well, and actually, that's a really important concept. It was a lot of trust. And and so we had a DERSA workgroup, and each of the 15 organizations had two seats at the table, a lawyer and a business person. So we had a core group of 30. They were able to invite others. I mean, sometimes we had upwards of 100 people on our phone calls, but the core group was 30. And I give ONC a lot of credit. They had us meet in person four times a year, and then we met monthly, virtually. And what's interesting is that group really did bond. And there was trust that grew out of that. And I sort of look back and say, that's where we really started to transition. We started off as a group of strangers, and then we bonded through this work group. We wrote the DERSA, and we all knew each other, and we all sat around and argued about this, that, or the other, and then came up with a consensus, and it was reflected in the document. And now people say, oh, okay, yeah, I'll sign the DERSA. And so it's fascinating to me how we've evolved in, you know, 15 years from where we started to where we are now. 
So, Jay, you mentioned, um, I mean, so much of what you said is fascinating. We'll probably have to have you back. But you mentioned a word, interoperability, which you, know, you and I use a lot because we, you know, we work together all the time. And, I, and other people use it too. But I'm curious, what's your definition of interoperability? That's that's a great point. And, you know, it, it really is an overused words with a lot of assumptions there. But, um, you know, off the top of my head, you know, I think it refers to the concept that that data can move from one system to another system. Number one, it can actually get there. You know, the receiving system won't spit it back out or reject it. But number two, the data in that system that, that's received, uh, that's sent, you know, is that connection is actually usable. So if I were working at hospital, you know, Main Street Hospital, you know, could my system receive data from another health system? And not only can my, can my hospital get that data in the front door, but then as needed and as appropriate, could I feed that to all the different systems within my hospital? You know, the data warehouse, an app, a web portal, the EHR, you know, various um, financial systems, or are those receiving systems going to choke on the data? And so if it's interoperable, it's going to be able to move around and then it's going to be usable. Yeah, that's super helpful. I think most people don't appreciate that just because, you know, you have one EHR, maybe Epic or Cerner if you're a hospital, probably one of those two, although you may have another one. If you're HCA, you have Meditate. But people don't realize that those different vendors don't automatically talk to each other, right? Right. So let's so, – so obviously eHealth Exchange, as far as I know, it's the – it's the health information network that's been around the longest. There are others now, and eHealth has, is helping them talk to each other. I want to shift gears to the latest and greatest experiment, I guess, in this called TEFCA. Right. And don't go too deep into the history, but just for the benefit of the audience, TEFCA means a trusted exchange framework and common agreement, TEFCA. It was mandated by Congress all the way back in 2016, believe it or not, as part of a huge federal law called the 21st Century Cures Act, C-U-R-E-S. And President Obama signed it in December of 2016 in the closing days of his administration. And it directed the HHS secretary and ONC to develop or designate an entity to create this this thing called TEFRA. So that's a little bit of the legislative background. Jay, you were eHealth was one of the first five organizations to be designated by ONC as a qualified health information network. That happened in December of twenty three, so very recent. Maybe you could talk us to talk about our, to our audience a little bit about what led you to want to do that? It was a lot of work and a lot of time. So why don't you share with the audience your, your thoughts about being a TEFCA QN? Yeah, yeah. That's a great question. There were a variety of reasons why we wanted to, part- we wanted to um, 
to participate in Tefka. But, you know, you know, of course, the biggest thing was our mission. So we're a nonprofit, you know, founded for the public good. And we thought, hey, if Congress went out of its way to write this into the Cures Act and to say that it was going to, going to create these, it was going to designate these networks as having the, the U.S. government's, um, uh, you know, good housekeeping seal of approval. And if it had the potential to help with patient care and to redu- reduce burden on the, the United, on the U.S. healthcare uh, sector, then it was something we wanted to do. And, you know, definitely involved a leap of faith. So there were organizations, and even I at times said to myself, you know, why would we do this? What are the benefits? What's the need? And can the government really pull this off? And, and the reality is the government could not have pulled it off. But eHealth Exchange and other similar networks went out of our way to be very collaborative um, and to make this successful. You know, part of our decision was definitely, hey, this would be a favor to ONC. And, you know, they have really stepped forward and tried to make healthcare operate better in the U.S. And so we, uh, we can definitely help out ONC and, uh, and throw our hat in the ring. And, um, you know, everyone I've spoken to has indicated that there's been significantly more interest in TEFCA than was originally expected. The real promise of TEFCA is, number one, the credibility of the U.S. government, which will hopefully help with trust. But, you know, to drill down on that, I think it's the, the promise of new use cases. So, you know, I don't have the stats right in front of me, but, you know, within, e- within eHealth Exchange, I'll bet you something crazy like 98% of the data that we facilitate the exchange of is exchanged for treatment purposes. So that means you've got a clinician who's probably at the hospital bedside or at a chair side or a table side in an office saying, Hey, I need this patient's history so I can make a safer, more informed clinical decision. But what that means is that very little data, you know, relatively is being exchanged for public health purposes and being exchanged for healthcare operations purposes and being exchanged for HIPAA payment purposes. So we're really hoping that the credibility of the U.S. government will help, will help us in the industry exchange more data as appropriate for non-treatment purposes. Yeah, that's a really important point, Jay. I mean, you're right. The the exchanging for treatment is is something we've been doing now, but it has been hard to move beyond that. And there are lots of reasons for that. Some technical, some policy, some legal, some just, you know, people's reluctance to to embrace new use cases. But do you think that ONC and the federal government will help make progress in those areas? You mean in the in the non treatment exchange? Yeah. yeah, I think they will, but but it's it's not a slam dunk. Mm-hmm. I mean, HIPAA was written for a variety of reasons, and it's been around now for you know 
two plus decades or whatever ballpark. And, you know, a big part of it is to, is to provide additional protections to patients to help with privacy and security. Mm-hmm. But, you know, without an act of Congress, some of those well-meaning and well-written requirements in HIPAA can't just be overridden by TEFCA. So TEFCA has to operate within the confines of existing law. And one of those big existing laws is HIPAA. So luckily, we won't be able to just ignore HIPAA and exchange data, you know, kind of willy-nilly. But that also means that it's not going to be super easy to change the way that we exchange data. Yeah, that's a really important point because, you know, Jay, as you all know, HIPAA is permissive. So, so HIPAA, HIPAA applies to covered entities and their business associates. Most people think of that as um, healthcare providers, and uh, but there, there are more. But, but, but HIPAA tells those covered entities what they're allowed to do with the protected health information they have. It's not mandatory. And, and so you're right. You do see different health systems and different providers and different health plans have different interpretations of what they want to share and what they might require before they share. That's not something HIPAA was really designed to fix. Um, so I agree with you. I think it will be interesting to see how TEFCA might help folks move beyond their reluctance to, to share information as we move forward. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, you could probably, I'm sure you can speak to this much more eloquently and with more authority, but, you know, HIPAA, as I remember, it has this concept of minimum necessary. Yep. So if you, if one healthcare organization asks another healthcare organization for data and the stated purpose of use is healthcare operations. Maybe it's for quality reporting or whatever. It's difficult for those two computer systems to negotiate what's the minimum necessary. If it's three in the afternoon or three in the morning, those IT systems are not always designed to figure out what the minimum necessary is. And so I think I think Tefka is going to struggle with that. No, I think you're right, that, and that's so true because there is no minimum necessary requirement under HIPAA for treatment, and so for treatment, no one has to make that decision. And I, I do think it's going to require some type of standards body to come up with standards, and then the software developers mm. have to write code. You and I lived through this with COVID. I mean, we're now three years post-COVID, hard to believe, maybe four, depending on who you talk to. But you and I remember in the height of COVID when uh, we were part of conversations with the Office of Civil Rights within Health and Human Services because public health agencies were asking for information, not for treatment, but for public health surveillance and intervention. And the people they were asking, the hospitals and providers, they wanted to get the information, but they didn't want to unintentionally violate HIPAA. And remember, we had Mm -hmm. a bunch of calls finally resolved itself in favor of 
public health agencies saying when they made a request, what we're asking for is the minimum necessary information. And that gave the providers and the covered entities sufficient protection that they were willing to share. I'm sure you remember all that. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, you're right. It's a huge issue. And when HIPAA was written, you know, well, the law was written in 1996, not even, not even this century. The privacy rule was finally adopted in 2002, I think. So, you know, 25 years ago, a lot of what we're talking about didn't even exist. Yeah. Yeah. So, right. And we, you know, back then we were lucky to be explain, exchanging claims, claims and eligibility. Right. And you're right. There was in 96, there was no privacy component. Right. And um, there didn't, there didn't really, need, it wasn't as imperative then, but you know, with the amount of data moving around now, it's super, super important. And, you know, we haven't had, despite of the breaches I read about seven days a week in the various um, trade publications, we haven't had a lot of super big ones that have caused Americans to distrust the way data is exchanged. And hopefully that continues. Oh, you're right. That's true. You know, I mean, we all are, we've all gotten notices that Equifax was breached or somebody else was breached. But but you're right. If you review the settlements that OCR enters into, more often than not, it's a lost laptop. It's you know something else that you know it's not a it's not a massive data hub that was attacked by nefarious agents from a foreign country. That that is that really isn't happening. Although we all worry about that. Hey Jake, in the few minutes we have left, let me ask you this. Try we'll try and work these in. What part of Tefka are you the most excited about? You know, now that you're a Chuhan and and we're just we're starting to do this for real. Yeah, yeah, great question. You know, I, it's really the public health exchange and the rules. The Tefka rules of the road for public health exchange are not yet final, but we're hopeful that we will see those in uh, March next month of 2024. Yep. And you know. This nation, you know, it's it's really astounding that even though we had a pandemic, what three whatever years ago, that um, that we really haven't figured this out. So you know, during the pandemic, which and this was a day late and a dollar short, Steve, you probably remember that we partnered up with APHL, the Association of Public Health Laboratories, to better get electronic case mm-hmm. reports, especially related to yep. COVID to be better exchanged, more broadly exchanged in all 50 states. And, you know, this was back in the, in the days and hours when we were all actually in quarantine. (laughs) So, you know, going out in our front yards and spraying our groceries with, uh, with bleach and um, before the days of masks and somehow we've, we figured it out. And then also during the pandemic, but after the quarantine, we partnered with FDA so that they could um, better exchange adverse event data, especially related to to vaccinations yep. using Fire R4. And that wouldn't have happened as quickly had it not been for the pandemic. And so I'm I'm really hoping that Tefka can help can help the nation 
better exchange data for public health purposes before we have another pandemic or catastrophic event. Yeah, I think that's true. I hope you're right. I know you and I are working on that, and hopefully that happens. Now, I I don't want to forget that. I want everyone to understand that e-health exchange is a lot more than just Tefka. I mean, e-health exchange was was and is a massive network outside of Tefka. So putting aside Tefka for a minute, what's the most exciting thing that you foresee for e-health exchange in the next year? Yeah, great question. So besides Tefka, I think it's the payer provider exchange. So we have joined HL7 DaVinci. In, uh, so that we, and we're leading an effort that's called Trebuchet. So think about like a, a catalyst. And we're working with payers and providers so that they can do a couple of things. Number one, providers can request prior authorizations within their natural EHR workflows and payers can streamline their corresponding process. And then number two, there's an initiative under DaVinci called CDEX, C-D-E-X, and that's clinical data exchange. And that's really to, to take the data exchange that's already happening today between payers and providers, but to really scale it and mature it so that everyone's using the same processes, the same policies to exchange that clinical data. So I'm most excited about our payer-provider exchange outside of TEFCA. And that might happen, or that will happen within TEFCA, I'm sure. It's just a question of when. Right, right. Because they have to prioritize. Oh, no, those are great. They're great answers. And we're, you know, we're about out of time. Jay, I want to thank you very much for taking the time to be part of our podcast Hopefully uh, you've enjoyed as much as I have, and, uh, and we Definitely. can have you. We can have you come back for some more conversations. Wonderful. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah, you bet. Well, thanks everyone for tuning in, and we'll uh, see you on the next podcast. Mm-hmm.